Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up, Illinois student test scores are still lower than they were pre-pandemic. What are schools doing to try to improve? We'll also hear how the student mobility rate, which tracks transfers in and out of schools, can impact classroom performance. And one school district is again trying to desegregate by socioeconomic status. We'll have a report. What is environmental justice and how is it being addressed here in Illinois? We'll get some answers. We'll also learn about the early history of the Second City Theater. And we'll visit a relatively new Chicago museum focused on post-punk and industrial music. We have those stories and more ahead this hour on Statewide. Stay with us. This is Statewide, I'm Sean Crawford. On the way, we'll talk about environmental justice, how it's being considered here in Illinois. We'll remember a woman who helped launch a famous Illinois comedy institution. And we'll go to a relatively new museum in Chicago that chronicles post-punk and industrial music. That's all ahead on Statewide. Three years after COVID-19 first upended education, most Illinois student test scores still lag well behind where they were in 2019. Peter Medlin has more on the resources teachers are using to try to close those gaps and what's happening at schools that have bounced back. In most school districts, the number of students proficient in math and English language arts has fallen off sharply during the pandemic. That's according to the Illinois Assessment of Readiness, or IAR, that tests third through eighth grade students. Scores, especially in ELA, started to climb back up a little bit last year. But in Rock Falls District 13, a small K-8 district in Whiteside County, its scores grew back rapidly. Rock Falls student scores are growing back faster than the average Illinois students with similar scores. Tara Kristoff is their curriculum director, and she says in the summer of 2020, the State Board of Education released priority standards for students to master in math and English language arts. And those standards were aligned with standardized testing, but there was no IAR testing in 2020. That had teachers doing pretty much a pedagogy shift in their head of, we're not going to be teaching these standards to the test, but we need to make sure students master these standards in order to move on to the next grade level. She says homing in on those priority standards is what kept their students' scores from dropping off and why they're growing back quickly now. Rock Falls Superintendent Dan Eric says it helps when a small district of 850 students that's 70% low income has one person leading curriculum and data. Kristoff meets individually with teachers to talk about student data. They check students' progress on the priority standards three times a year and devote special focus to whichever they're struggling with the most. And she says they also have a new social-emotional curriculum this year as well. In DeKalb, they're also hoping data-driven teaching will help their students rebound academically. They're a much bigger district than Rock Falls, and starting this year, they now have two people working with teachers on data and interventions. Sarah Schaefer is one of them. She's the elementary STEAM manager at DeKalb Public Schools. Their district is also doubling down on collaboration between teachers. This year, they created professional learning communities at the elementary school level. That's where teachers from the same grade level or same subject meet for a few hours every other week to look at data and identify trends from their classrooms. She says that at the middle school level, they also now have a 30-minute win period every day. Win stands for what I need. Student is struggling in math. They would spend their win period doing remediation for math. 
Ben Epperson is the executive director of curriculum at Rockford Public Schools, one of the largest districts in the state. A lot of the struggle, whether whether we're talking math or science or English or anything, really boils down to a lot of social emotional impacts that the students experienced. He says they shifted their curriculum prior to the pandemic to make student interaction a more crucial part to how they engage with math instruction. Now students are in the classroom and can interact much more easily than when they were learning online. But he says the social part of the equation has still been a challenge. Epperson also says that equity is a massive part of student progress. Rockford IAR scores slightly improved in 2022, but twice as many black students don't meet standards compared with white students. He says they're also hoping that data can help close those gaps. Last year, they rolled out an initiative that created eight standards of practice for each RPS school that they can monitor throughout the school year. They can be strategic, academic, or social-emotional, and there is support for these moves at the state level. Dr. Jen Kerms is the Executive Director for Teaching and Learning at the Illinois State Board of Education. She says this year, the Illinois Report Card now includes an equity journey continuum. It gives local communities and school leaders a place to go to start and to reflect on where are the places in their own practice, in their own systems, where outcomes are not equitable. She says the state's evidence-based funding system has also made a substantial difference, allowing schools to start programs and invest in new curriculum throughout the pandemic. Kerm says it's also a reason the state stood out in some national metrics. According to the nation's report card, Illinois was one of only two states that didn't see fourth grade math scores decline from 2019 to 2022. And for schools like Rock Falls, the goal isn't to just get back to where they were before the pandemic in 2019. They hope academic and social emotional investments will make their students more successful than ever. I'm Peter Medlin. The Biden administration wants to make environmental justice a key part of its climate strategy. That means new diligence in enforcing environmental laws and regulations. The work falls in part to the Department of Justice, where a new office has been created called the Office of Environmental Justice. Brian Denham of WGLT spoke with the U.S. Attorney for Central Illinois, Gregory Harris, about how the national initiative will play out locally. The purpose of the environmental justice initiative was to protect all communities from suffering the harmful effects of environmental crimes, which all too often are borne by our underserved and historically marginalized and overburdened communities, including communities, low-income communities, communities of color, and tribal and indigenous uh, communities. So that was the purpose of it. It's not really creating new laws. It's just sort of enforcing those laws in areas that historically have not benefited by the environmental enforcement policies. So what types of cases specifically do you expect your office to be bringing more of? Primarily, the um, Environmental Justice Initiative uh, takes an approach that to use all available remedies that the government, federal government has to address uh, harmful effects of uh, environmental crimes. The the majority of these types of uh, enforcement uh, actions are going to be brought in the civil side, not not the criminal side. So there'd be enforcement uh, from the uh, civil division as far as EPA regulations and, and that type of types of things. It, but we do have uh, criminal uh, statutes that uh, are going to be uh, resorted to to address the environmental crimes, including the uh, Clean Air Act, 
the Clean Water Act, uh, Investos Act, and various other uh, federal statutes that already are on the books, such as mail and wire fraud, uh, and those uh, types of uh, criminal statutes will be uh, utilized to enforce the uh, Environmental Justice Initiative. And given the makeup of your district here in central Illinois, do you expect environmental issues around agriculture to be an area where you devote any, any special emphasis? Absolutely. I'm not sure that we could call it special emphasis, but it's the enforcement of all of those acts that I mentioned before um, to uh, address agricultural issues uh, involving uh, pesticides, for for example. Um, and we've already in the past uh, brought criminal charges against individuals who have violated uh, the Clean Air and Clean Water Act uh, involving uh, pesticides and misinforming the public, for example, on the use of pesticides. And one case that uh, we, we uh, prosecuted was uh, prosecuted in Ford County. And in that, uh, Gibson City, I think, was the location. And in that particular case, a company created a product which it distributed and marketed to individuals that wanted to clear algae from their ponds and that type of thing and used a chemical that was specifically not to be used in water. Um, and that uh, caused um, uh, great harm, including a number of fish kills. That's an example of an agricultural uh, case where um, we used our criminal statutes to uh, convict the uh, defendant of mail fraud. So who's the team working on this? Um, do you have a, a point person or point persons focused on environmental justice work? Well, we do. 94 U.S. attorney's offices around the country have been directed to uh, implement this initiative and as part of that have been directed to uh, employ a coordinator for environmental justice issues. And we are very fortunate to have as our coordinator, John Holzer, who is in our civil division, is an AUSA there, has come to us from the um, DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, and it is a you know, top-notch lawyer in our office, and he's been uh, delegated to be responsible for our district uh, environmental protection uh, initiative. I would like to just ask you, as you are uh, just over a year here since your confirmation, uh, you're, you're in some change. Um, <laughs> How do you think it's gone so far, your first year here in this role? Well, the term swimmingly well comes to mind. <laughs> and I was very fortunate to be in this office uh, for almost 30 years before becoming the U.S. attorney. And uh, so I'm very familiar with the personnel in the office. I'm very familiar with the district. I'm very familiar with the law enforcement agencies in the district. That's a big help when you, you take over this job. The other thing that I uh, benefited from by coming in as U.S. attorney is a very senior staff. So I have a very senior management staff. Most of the, the managers in our office, these are all people that have at least uh, 20, 30 years of experience in this very office. What has been the biggest, uh, the biggest challenge in this first year? Not trying to do too much, <laughs> taking it slow. And our primary uh, focus and priority right now is gun violence. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're trying to get a handle on um, how to deal with this uh, problem, uh, uh, both nationally and locally, and what strategies that we can employ to um, deal with this type of gun violence. And uh, a number of things that the Attorney General has come out with, I think, have been very helpful uh, in terms of addressing this violence, and in particular, I think, a different approach that the AG um, has uh, 
mandated us to, to um, use as a tool is more community outreach. Um, and so trying to, trying to be an effective spokesperson for the community in addressing uh, what they're or listening and finding out what their issues are and how they can help us in law enforcement has been um, a task that uh, has taken me all over the district and is um, but something that I think is, is fruitful and uh, I want to continue to do. That's U.S. Attorney Gregory Harris, the top federal prosecutor in central Illinois, and he spoke with Ryan Denham. About 10% of U.S. households are food insecure, and there are a number of programs in place to help bring that number down. One of those is the Supplemental Nutrition Education Program, or SNAP-Ed, which involves educating food stamp recipients about low-budget eating. But a recent investigation by Harvest Public Media and the Midwest Newsroom found some employees of the SNAP-Ed program are paid so little they themselves are experiencing food insecurity. Today we revisit a report from Dana Cronin. Hi guys, would you like to try some roasted garbanzo beans? Once a month on a Saturday morning, Del Jacobs sets up a booth at the Urbana Farmers Market in central Illinois. People periodically walk by her booth, which today features a simple, healthy recipe. And then put it in the oven at 400 for 40 to 50 minutes. I go longer because I like a crunch. This is just one of Dell's responsibilities as a SNAP-Ed community worker. She also runs community cooking classes, visits food pantries, and teaches SNAP recipients how to eat healthy on a budget. But this, meeting people at the farmer's market, is her favorite part of the job. I just love talking to people of all walks of life, and that's what I get to do in this job. What Dell doesn't like about the job is the pay. At the time we met, Dell was making $13.79 per hour. She'd been working there for six years, and over that time, her pay increased by just a dollar an hour. She says the pay is so low that, ironically, she herself has qualified for SNAP benefits. She took an additional job to make ends meet. Once a week, I clean a house for $25 an hour, and isn't that sad that I get more for cleaning a house. Dell's not alone. According to an investigation by Harvest Public Media and the Midwest Newsroom, SNAP-Ed employees across the Midwest make on average about $13 an hour. The SNAP-Ed program is grant-funded through the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In most Midwestern states, it's run by a land-grant university. So in Dell's case, the University of Illinois determines her wage. Jennifer McCaffrey is the SNAP-Ed program coordinator in Illinois. She knows that some of her employees struggle financially. Yeah, it, it does concern me, but you kind of have to find out, well, what does this individual need that can help them? So is it more affordable housing? It runs the gamut, right? Dell says what she needs is a higher wage which she did finally receive just recently. She now makes $16.51 an hour. And she's not alone. In just the last few months, workers in Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, and Oklahoma also received wage increases. 
Candace Gable is the program director in Oklahoma. She just successfully raised her employees' wages from $10 to $12 an hour. But she says that's still not high enough to attract and retain workers. You can't hire anybody because they're so low. Because you can go to work at McDonald's in Tulsa and make $15 an hour. But Gable only has so much wiggle room. After all, SNAP-Ed is a USDA grant-funded program. So if she wants to increase wages, she probably has to cut the number of positions. And if we don't have enough people to reach the population, then how are we going to meet our goals? Goals like reducing Oklahoma's high obesity rate or teaching healthy eating habits to children. To do that and pay her employees a living wage, Gable says she needs more money from the USDA. The USDA declined to speak on the record for this story, but did send a statement emphasizing that it's up to each state to determine staff salaries. But there's a cap to each state's SNAP-Ed funding allocation. That number is determined by a formula in the Farm Bill. A new formula could mean more money for states, and by extension, for SNAP-Ed workers like Dell Jacobs. And while Dell did get a recent raise, she says she's still fighting to earn a living wage. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. We've got more to come on Statewide. Stay right here. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. The newest National Historical Park is on the south side of Chicago. Adora Nimigude reports. The Pullman neighborhood is known for its influence on urban planning and design and its role in history including the 1894 Pullman strike that contributed to the federal holiday, Labor Day. Congresswoman Robin Kelly has been working to elevate the area to a park designation since she was elected in 2013. This is a part of U.S. history. When you think about we still celebrate and we'll go on forever celebrating Labor Day, we are still fighting that battle. And it's good to know your history, as they say, so you don't repeat it. She says the designation will help the park expand its programming and boost economic development in the neighborhood in general. The area was previously designated as the Pullman National Monument. Adora Namigade, WBEZ News. Illinois' other national park, is the Lincoln home in Springfield. Next on Statewide, let's head to Chicago with Stephen Kaleo of World Cafe. He produced this segment as part of the Sense of Place series. Chicago is home to world-class cultural institutions like the Field Museum, Art Institute, and Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Grand buildings filled with immaculately displayed objects. One of the city's newest museums has a decidedly different approach. So this is my drum kit. Um, Killing Joke Ministry, Nine Inch Nails, Pig Face. I failed to destroy that drum kit in the last three decades. I'm like, I challenge anybody to have a <laughs> go ahead, you know. Welcome to the Museum of Post-Punk and Industrial Music located in an undisclosed, nondescript building on the south side of Chicago. And today I'm being given a tour by its creator and curator, Martin Atkins, who spent decades playing in bands like Public Image Limited, Nine Inch Nails, Killing Joke, Ministry, and founded Pigface, a supergroup featuring hundreds of collaborators. He's a bit of a punk rock mad scientist. This is a museum of post-punk and industrial music, um, which has started 18, 19, 20 months ago here in Chicago, which I think you would argue is the home of industrial music, for sure. It's the reason I moved here, 
1989 was that energy from industrial. You didn't want this to be a traditional museum. Like, what was the mission statement in your head? What was the ideal when you were thinking this well, up? Well, when you say what was a mission statement, you're implying that there was a plan. <laughs> I, I mean, and there just wasn't. But there was Martin's DIY attitude, which has driven him as a musician, artist, set designer, teacher, and author. During COVID, he was looking at his collection of memorabilia and knew now was the time to preserve it the only way he knew how. We didn't ask for permission. I'm like, oh my goodness, that sounds very punk. You know, oh my goodness, I, I am living the words we used to say. You know what else is punk? Where Martin put the museum. It used to be a funeral home. If you like industrial and funerals, yeah. And a lot of people like industrial. Using rock music with electronic rhythms and a mechanical sound, it took root in Chicago in the 1980s. It's what brought Martin to the Windy City, thanks to the influential early record label, Wax Tracks. I wanted my band Pigface to be on Wax Tracks. I came to Chicago to work with Ministry on the Cage Tour and sat in a studio and then hung out with Albini and had Jesus Lizard do their second ever show on my roof. Like, did what the hell? It was like 1976 London. Energy in Chicago then was so special. Weather was still horrible, but, but the energy was huge. Despite the weather, the scene that Wax Tracks helped foster started attracting people who would make Chicago and industrial music synonymous. So many people uh, were magnetized here. Nesh from KMFDM, you know, uh, people were just drawn to that. So once you create this magnet, and then Front 242 and, and all of these other people, Frontline Assembly, Skinny Puppy, all these people are coming here. You throw in Cabaret Metro and this support system and it's exponential. It was a collection of like-minded weirdos that included a young Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. To be the only person somewhere that looks a certain way or has a certain idea, that's difficult. I think Trent grew up in the middle of Pennsylvania somewhere. You know, the north of England was difficult to be a punk. You know, when I grew up and I moved to London. And I was fortunate enough to see it as an outsider, to see it having experienced punk and post-punk in London. Um, I, was, I, I recognized awesomeness and adrenaline and creativity. And so I'm like, well, I don't know what's going on, but I'm gonna move into the middle of it. Chicago was the perfect place for an industrial music museum alongside its close sibling. Martin, with his connections to several seminal bands, was the right person to get it off the ground. It wasn't a crusade. I wasn't keeping stuff to put in a museum. I just kept everything. And I could have put that just on display, but that would have been the museum of Martin Atkins. My mom might have liked that, but how sad, how sad would that have been? And thanks to a little help, Martin has amassed quite the collection. I want to say there's 3,000 pieces in the building, maybe six or seven. How many pieces are these of, of the museum is from your personal collection? A year ago, 98%. Okay. Now, and the thing I love about it, now we're at about 
The Museum of Post-Punk and Industrial Music might not be the largest space, but it's crammed floor-to-ceiling with concert scenery, pictures, t-shirts, tour posters, platinum records, stickers, buttons, and so much more. Major bands of the era receive their own mini-shrines. Downstairs, there's a recording studio where you can remix one of Pigface's songs and take home a cassette copy of your own personal version. There are also a few contributions from fans that surprised even Martin. The bongos over there, the Paul Ravens bongos, he's, he's been gone 14 years now. But somebody said to me, oh, I've got Killing Joke's bongos. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, there aren't any, you know? And I want to send an email that says, nice try, F you. But I'm learning at last to dial it down a bit. So my response was, hmm, really tell me more. It's like, well, Paul Raven used to come to the house and these were his bongos. He'd pick them up and play these bongos and put his stickers on them and tell stories. I'm like, oh my goodness, please send them to me. So all of these, all of these items start to reverberate for me. It's, it's like when you listen to a song that was important to you, your memory kicks off this place triggers these memories for people and puts them in that loop. That person being triggered by those memories? That's me. I grew up with industrial and post-punk music. Nine Inch Nails and Joy Division are two of my favorite bands. So I was in the loop when Martin decided to take me over to one of his favorite objects. I want to show you this for so many reasons. This is a this is an album. Sandpaper. Uh, you can also do your nails here at the museum. Uh, this is a band called Duritty Column on Factory Records in 1980. So the legend has it that members of Joy Division were drunk at the Factory Records office, gluing sandpaper to these albums. And the idea is it's so punk. You put it into your collection. Take it out, put it in, uh, ow, <laughs> take it out, right? And it slowly destroys the album to the left and the right. And I'm like, oh, this is so punk. It's so passive aggressive. It's like Neil Young, Rust Never Sleeps, right? We're destroying your entire collection. A musical nod to Guy Debord's memories. Martin has a knack for turning the mundane into the memorable. Well, some members of large bands would like, oh, I've lost my pass. No, you didn't. You gave it to somebody because we wouldn't give you any more guest lists. So you'd have everybody sign for their passes. So you've got this insane bureaucracy within a crazy band with no restrictions, except you have to sign for your passes on a Tuesday. And so thank goodness Jolly Roger had people sign. Now I've got this 35 signatures on this one page. So instead of railing against that bureaucracy, I'm like, Fantastic. I have a signature wall now. Yeah. All of these pieces Atkins worked to collect and preserve, and he wondered, how do you go about sharing it? He knew he didn't want it to be a traditional museum. These throbbing gristle buttons from 1976 are so rare, signed pieces, lots of pieces from people who aren't with us anymore. But instead of closing the doors and protecting the stuff, the way to protect the vibe is to let people in. So we did pop-up haircuts 
you know, so there's hair all over the floor, which is not museum uh, 101. We did a whiskey pancake brunch for people to sit and like, never mind the museum. What about, you want some more pancakes? Mm -hmm. So, and then you, you kind of stumble into what I like about punk and post-punk and industrial music, which is this doing things differently, rolling up your sleeves and making things happen and involving the audience in it. And if there was going to be a museum, it was gonna be a group effort. And early signs showed that support was there. Very quickly, 100, 200 people, like, yes, we're in. And that keeps happening. 18 months in, it's still happening. And now 1,200 people are founders of the museum. But before this room existed, that's a leap of faith. That's trust. That's community. It's all the things that, you know, better than a 10-page agreement will make anybody, especially me, put 10 times the effort in than I, than I would if I was being forced to do something. So when the community does that, it's like, oh, that's great. It's an entirely DIY undertaking. We haven't received a cent from the city of Chicago. That will come later. Um, but we just made this happen, which is a very different conversation than waiting for permission from people who will want to then go suggest no pancakes, no haircuts. Martin sees the museum not just as a celebration of music, but a celebration of a city that helped make that music possible, welcoming everyone to put their signature on a wall that's traditionally been defined as hands-off, making a gallery space more democratic, less precious. In a lot of ways, that's what Chicago is all about. This is Chicago, so why I'm here. When you're here, the community comes together and, and lifts everybody up. It's a, it's a roll up your sleeves thing. And everybody's helping each other, you know? That's Chicago. And that is Martin Atkins, a one-of-a-kind Chicagoan who invites you to go to his museum and get your hands dirty. This enables us to talk to people about creativity. If you're trying to come up with an idea, you'll never come up with an idea. I like to tell people, come here, eat all the crayons, and just see what you felt. And of course, you can bleep the hell out of that. To find out how you can visit the Museum of Post-Punk and Industrial Music, find details at martinatkins.com. For Sense of Place, Chicago, I'm Kaleo. This is World Cafe. And thanks to World Cafe and Stephen Kaleo for that segment. You're listening to Statewide. When one school district in central Illinois set out to desegregate by socioeconomic status, very few parents liked the idea, no matter their racial or economic background. After all, this is at least the third time Champaign Unit 4 has tried to desegregate to close achievement gaps between students. So why try again? Emily Hayes got some answers from four education professors. Yes, desegregation does work. That's the answer from the first professor, Gregory Pilardi. An associate professor at the University of California, Riverside, he's constantly analyzing data on school integration. He says it does help students from low socioeconomic backgrounds, or SES, succeed. And a lot of research suggests attending a high SES school kind of rubs off on you more than your own SES even. Socioeconomic status means three things, parent income, parent education level, and parent occupation. It doesn't mean race, though they are correlated. Now, if you have peers that come from higher SES families, um, they tend to have parents that are more highly educated. 
children from those backgrounds tend to you know, have higher achievement, more advanced academic skills, um, and those factors tend to rub off. So if researchers have crunched the numbers on this so many times and overall found the same thing, why hasn't desegregation closed achievement gaps? Well, few places have fully desegregated. Half of white students across the country still go to mostly white schools, especially in the Midwest, according to a 2022 report by the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Even in schools that look integrated from the outside, their classrooms may not be. The second professor I talked to about this is Tokes Fashola. She's an education research professor at American University in Washington, D.C. Fashola says white families have often created silos within black schools to avoid integrating. In one case in Pennsylvania where she served as an expert witness, schools created advanced placement classes. As soon as they were told that they had to integrate, the number of AP classes doubled and tripled. And that's where you saw all the white children. All of a sudden, a school that never had any AP classes, the number of AP classes just increased. And districts inflicted some deep wounds on Black communities as they integrated. The third professor is Asif Wilson, who researches teaching and curricula at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Districts all over the country cut much of their Black teaching force after the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Wilson says Black teachers knew best how to teach their students and knew the most about their collective history. They went to the stores. They went to the churches. They were part of the sort of communal milieu, and DSEG completely interrupted that. In Illinois, almost 17 percent of students are Black, but only 6 percent of teachers are, according to the State Board of Education's most recent report card. So is desegregation still worth it if the backlash can be so effective and harmful? Wilson says no. He wants to see neighborhood schools with the resources and teaching styles that will make them effective for Black students. Our fourth professor says yes, desegregation is effective. It just needs to be done right. Lois Carruthers is an education professor at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. She has overseen and been frustrated by desegregation efforts herself. She says teachers need to be on board with integration by race and class for it to be successful. I definitely believe that integrated schools are better for kids and that they lead to good outcomes for uh, kids overall. I think that if uh, teachers do what they need to do, then students, in a sense, will sort of follow. And those are the four professors. Mostly they say socioeconomic desegregation does help students. It's the way districts have often desegregated or resisted doing so that has been so harmful. I'm Emily Hayes. Just ahead, the impact of student mobility rates on achievement. More of Statewide is on the way. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up, we'll look back to the founding of the Second City Theater. But first, Rockford Public Schools perennially have some of the highest student mobility rates in the state. That's the percent of students who experience at least one transfer in or out of their school during the year. Experts say the disruption can be especially harmful. Peter Medlin tells us more. In 2021, Lewis Lemon Elementary School in Rockford had the highest student mobility rate of any elementary school in Illinois. Around 50%, half of the kids at Lewis Lemon moved in or out of the school between October and the end of the school year. 
And in 2022, Ellis Elementary School in Rockford had the second highest student mobility rate of any elementary school in Illinois with just over 34%. Lewis Lemon was also in the top five again. For context, the state average for mobility is around 7%. Lewis Lemon and Ellis are also less than a half a mile away from each other on Rockford's west side. And the other schools in Rockford with sky-high mobility rates are also in this area, Auburn High School and Kennedy Middle School. Tabitha Endries Cruz is the executive director of the Northwest Community Center in Rockford. Along with other community services, they offer after-school programs and academic enrichment for elementary school students, many of whom go to Ellis and Lewis Lemon. She says she's not surprised to hear about the mobility issues on the west side of the city. There's so many schools that are so close by that if you move one block the wrong direction, you're in a different zone. In fact, she said that very situation just happened to a family with kids in their program. They moved one street down and had to switch schools. But even though they transferred schools, their bus can still come to the community center after school. Andrea's crew says they see themselves as a steadying presence, especially for students experiencing disruptions like that. Aaron Jarrett is the superintendent of Rockford Public Schools, and he says their community really wanted to return to a neighborhood schools model with some choice programs built into it. But with that comes, I think, a real risk for high mobility. There are 21 elementary school zones that fit into four high school zones, and he says having so many rigid elementary zone boundaries is an issue they might need to change with policy. One of the policy proposals we are going to be contemplating is, do we at least allow mobility within the high school zone as opposed to literally having these small elementary zones? When you talk about some of the things that happen with housing instability, we are doubling down inadvertently, I think, on some of the challenges that that creates. Jarrett says student mobility is way too high in Rockford, even compared with other large urban districts. Moving itself is pretty common, but schools with higher percentages of black and low-income students tend to have higher mobility rates. That's according to Richard Welsh. He's an associate professor of education and public policy at the Peabody College at Vanderbilt University, and he published research examining student mobility in 2017 in the Review of Educational Research. He says there are several factors that cause mobility. He says first, you can break it down into structural and non-structural. So non-structural is when a family moves on their own, whether it be for a new job or loss of work. Most of the literature have found that there's this association between changing schools and, you know, worse student outcomes. So or decrease in test scores, higher dropouts. He says there are situations where the benefits of moving outweigh the costs of mobility. Say a family moves into a neighborhood with better schools and more support staff. But with low-income communities, that's not usually the case, especially during a pandemic. Poor families often have to move quickly to the safest, most convenient location possible without being able to take the time to weigh the strength of schools. A study from Johns Hopkins found this is often due to income change, housing quality and landlord issues, and neighborhood violence. Those are non-structural reasons for mobility. Structural is due to systems and policies of the school itself. That could be as simple as finishing eighth grade and moving on to the high school, but it could also mean exclusionary discipline policies like suspensions, expulsions, or expulsions and abeyance. Rockford Public Schools consistently ranks in the top five in Illinois for suspensions and expulsions, and administrators in Rockford handed out 7,000 suspensions last year. That's more than twice what Elgin's District U46 gave out, even though they have more students than Rockford. They also send hundreds of students back and forth to alternative schools every year through expulsions in abeyance. 
Richard Welsh says that school discipline and mobility are inextricably linked. When we think of chronic absenteeism, when we think of school discipline, when we think of student mobility, they tend to be cause and consequences of each other. He says it's also important to note that mobility doesn't just impact the student moving. It might affect the student as they go through these transitions and try and navigate a new schooling environment, but it also affects the school and students within that school who didn't move as schools themselves try to navigate the churn of students and how that might impact um, their day-to-day -day operation and the strategic direction moving forward. That's something Aubrey Barnett sees all the time. She's an English teacher at Flynn Middle School in Rockford. Its mobility rate is lower than the rest of Rockford, but still more than twice the state average. It was heartbreaking to watch them leave. I had several students leave, some as early in the year as like October because some zoning issue. She says it affects how they teach, and the district keeps the curriculum structured with every quarter being the same. They want a kid to be able to move between schools if needed because that's their family life and not punish that kid by starting a totally repeated curriculum because the next teacher doesn't do the sequencing the same way. She gives the district credit for using that strategy, but it's not just the curriculum. It impacts her and the other students in her classes. Sometimes you really didn't know if they were going to leave or not, and having to work through those conflicts and relationships and conversations and what their friends are saying and what their social media is saying, all of that is like just it takes up emotional space and energy in a room. She says building relationships with her students is the foundation of her work as a teacher. And that's even harder when kids are coming in and out of the school. And that's not to mention how hard it is for a student to start fresh in a new place and leave their friends and old teachers behind. I'm Peter Madlin. Well, it's a good bet you've heard of Second City, the famous comedy club that got its start in Chicago. But what did Jane Addams, the 19th century Chicago reformer, and modern improvisational comedy have in common? Maureen McKinney talked with the author Tara McClellan McAndrew, who gives us the details. I was lucky enough to take um, a class at Second City pre-COVID. And that's when I learned that the roots of Second City and modern improv comedy overall Go back to Hull House, Jane Addams Hull House in Chicago. Who would have thought, right? Who would have thought that Jane Addams and her work at Hull House would have led to improv comedy, Second City, Saturday Night Live, etc.? And I was just fascinated by that. Jane Addams Hull House settlement in the Chicago area was known for helping immigrants, not theater. So how did her work lead to a new form of theater? Well, surprisingly, um, it did. One of the social workers at Hull House, who was named Neva Boyd, had used games to work with the immigrant kids. And she was training a young woman named Viola Spolin. And Neva taught her how to use these games to work with the immigrants and the children. And this is according to Viola Spolin's granddaughter, Aretha Sills. She felt that play um, brought kids together, but it also taught them how to work together as a group and as a community and ultimately a democracy. Because when kids play together, they have to navigate all sorts of differences to get the game up and running. To make sure everyone keeps playing, everyone has to get some of their needs met, right? And so they're, you know, they'll argue over the rules. And But play is its own reward. It's a wonderful educational tool. Did Viola Spolin, who's considered the mother of modern improv theater, create this to help the immigrants? Interestingly, no. 
Her granddaughter, Aretha, says that while Hull House saw games as a way to help immigrants assimilate into American culture, Viola saw it as a tool to help people thrive in life. I actually came across something in her note uh, where she said she actually broke with the progressives over that idea of assimilation. She wasn't interested in that. She said she was interested in transformation. So how did Viola's work lead to Second City, the well-known improv theater in Chicago? Well, that was her son Paul Sills doing. According to Mark Larson, a Chicago writer and author of Ensemble, an oral history of Chicago theater, um, Paul was the one who created Second City and brought his mom into it. And her son, Paul Sills, was, you know, uh, growing up around all of this and participating in it. So he's kind of steeped in it, right? And eventually he attended the University of Chicago where there really was no theater department at all. And he started a company of his own called the Playwrights Theater Club in the early 50s, 1951. And he started using the games there, too, to create this ensemble of players. And here's this is what's so cool. At that theater company that lasted less than two years, but out of that came Mike Nichols and Elaine May. That's where they started discovering one another and, and how they work. Barbara Harris, Ed Asner. Did Second City arise from that? Not Yet, uh, Paul created one more theater company called the Compass Players, which experimented with improv, and it took questions from the audience, so you can see how improv was starting with this one. This, the Compass Players, was really Second City's prototype, if you will. In 1959, that's when Second City was born. Paul and some of the Compass players formed Second City, and prom, Paul brought his mom, Viola, to work it with the actors there. Mark Larson says this put Chicago on the map theatrically. What was so different about it? Why did people want to come? Well, you're, first off, you're not working from a script. <laughs> you know, when you think of theater, especially in 1959 in Chicago, there wasn't a whole lot going on. There were touring shows coming through, that kind of thing. Um, there were small theater companies, but Second City comes along, and it's just totally new. It's it, like I say, it's drawing on drawing on the headlines. It's drawing on very modern concepts. It's extremely fresh, and nobody'd seen anything like it. Did the early Second City actors? know that they were making history? <laughs> That's a funny story. Um, no, not according to one of those early actors, Paul Sand. He went on to have a long career in theater, film, and television, and surprisingly, when I asked him this question, he said, no, we, we didn't. We were just there on this street in Chicago with no desire to be anyplace else, and so into it, and having so much fun. It was just constantly a good time. A lot of Second City actors end up on Saturday Night Live. When did that start? Mark Larson says it started after Saturday Night Live began in the 1970s. He says no one intended on this. This just kind of organically happened. Um, and he talks about how one of Second City's founders, Bernie Salins, discussed the effect of SNL starting in his memoir. What was happening was um, people, actors were going in there for the purpose of hopefully being spotted, which changed everything. 
And in Bernie's um, memoir, he says something about, you know, I saw one of my actors on the phone talking to an agent, you know, on the payphone talking to an agent, and I knew everything was changing. Mm-hmm. Audiences were growing because of that, but it really did change what was happening at Second City and the purpose for people wanting to become involved. And did that affect today's improv clubs? Well, it has in Paul Sand's opinion. One of the things he loved about Second City's early days and working with Viola was he said the actors were a team. They were all a team. Everyone was the same, and they were working toward the same goal. But Paul says that's not true of some of today's comedy clubs that he's been to. I tried going to some clubs here where they do it. They're doing it all wrong. They're all being competitive. They all look scared to death. And they're not playing the game. They're not working off each other. And they need Viola. One thing that Aretha Sills, Viola's granddaughter, who still teaches Viola's methods, talked about was that not all improv clubs, comedy improv clubs in America, are based on Viola's methods. But her book is still used today. Her book is considered the Bible of improv, and it's still used today. And there are still modern actors, including John Riley, who are huge advocates of Viola's approach to theater. He was in the film Chicago. He was with Will Ferrell in Step Brothers. And so her work lives on. You know, Second City, according to Aretha Sills, is based on Viola's games. And we all know how how popular that has become. So Hull House's effect on modern comedy in America still lives. That's author Tara McClellan McAndrew. She wrote about the roots of the Second City Theater, and you can read more at our website. That's all the time we have for Statewide. Be with us next week. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Remember, you can find all of our episodes at nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide. And our weekly podcast is available through the NPR One app. Sean Crawford and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.